Carter Report presents worship from the Community Adventist Fellowship in Glendale, California. A special welcome to all of our viewers in North America and our new friends and churches in Russia. Today you'll enjoy uplifting music and the preaching of the everlasting gospel by pastor, teacher, and evangelist John Carter. Please get your Bible and study the Word of God with us today. Thank you for joining us for Worship and Praise. Today, as we continue our studies of the book of Revelation, we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 10. For thousands of years, Jewish believers and Christian believers have asked the question, how long is it going to go on for? How long is there going to be suffering? How long is the oppressor going to be free to oppress the people of God? How long will the night last until we have the beautiful rays of daybreak? Uh, it has been said by one philosopher, and rightly so, that there is no greater hell conceivable than the hell of an unending human existence. Life with pain and suffering is fine when you're 20, but when the years go by and afflictions come, it has been said we could not imagine a greater hell than the hell of an unending human existence. This chapter today asks the question, answers the question, how long? This chapter also gives the description of the final proclamation of the gospel message. It also describes the most amazing of all mysteries. The word mystery is mentioned a number of times in the Bible. This chapter talks about the greatest of mysteries and it describes the little book that must be eaten. And today we are going to offer to Every person sitting here in the church, listening to the Word of God, we're going to offer to every person the little book that must be eaten. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 10. And I want you to notice verse 1 to start with because we are going to read every verse in this marvelous chapter. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. Glory. And a rainbow was on his head. What does the rainbow stand for? Hope. Mm. Promise. It tells us that the God who speaks is always trustworthy, and he never breaks his word. The symbol of the covenant is, is a very beautiful symbol because it tells us that God is altogether worthy of our trust. He will not forsake you. He will not 
let you down, but he is worthy of your trust. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, full of glory. And his feet, and it would include the legs, like pillars of fire. And the question is, who is this person? And it appears from a comparison with other texts of the Bible that this is a description of Jesus Christ, the triumphant Lord. And he comes down from glory, and the Bible tells us he comes with a little book, and that little book contains a message for the entire human race, and it is a message for you and for me today. Would you please notice verse 2? And he had a little book open in his hand. Notice that. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. The question is, what is the little book? Now today, from my study, I may differ with some old traditional views. Please forgive me. I'm going to suggest at the outset that this little book is the final revelation of God's last message to a perishing world. I'm going to suggest that the little book which is open in the hand of Jesus contains God's last message to planet Earth and parallels Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 12. While, and you folks don't need to turn to that text because that is the message of the three angels, which is God's last message to the world. It has been suggested by some commentators that this little book is the book of Daniel. But I would suggest to you that even though this little book contains the, the, the great message of the book of Daniel, it is more than the book of Daniel. It is the very synopsis of God's last message to the inhabitants of planet Earth. And it is a little book which is opened. It contains the sum and the substance of the plan of redemption. And listen to what one commentator said, friend, because it is important. He said, that only is the true gospel which can be explained in a minute to one drifting in, into eternity. It is a little book because that only is the true gospel which can be explained in a minute to one drifting into eternity. And while the Bible is filled with tremendously important information, there is some information which is more important than anything else. And that is the message of the love of God and that Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. I want you folks to know this today. If you really want to know what is important, what is really important, think of your last moment on this earth and think what you will be holding on to in that last brief moment of time. I have talked to all sorts of people who were wonderful theologians and who knew a great deal about scripture, knew all about the prophecies, but I know one thing, when time comes for them to die, they are interested in a little book. 
the brief message of the love of God that tells me that Christ died for the ungodly and I am saved and safe if I rely upon him for salvation. So I would suggest to you today that the little book contains God's last message to the world. I'm comforted when I read about the dying thief, and you don't need to turn to this text because you know it. In Luke 23, there, there is the story of the dying thief, and he cries out to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise. My friend, he didn't have time for a lot of Bible studies. Hear this? He didn't have time to understand about Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks, or Daniel 8 verse 14 about the 2300 days. He didn't have time to understand all the mysteries that are contained in the Word of God, but he was saved in a moment because Jesus gave him the message of the little book. And the message was, because you rely upon me, you will be with me one day in the resurrection in paradise. And ultimately, that is what I need. And ultimately, that is all I need. The Bible says in verse 3, and I want you to notice verse 3, dear people, that this message is not a whispering hope. And cried with a loud voice as when a line roars. When I was in Africa, I had the privilege of going into Wanky National Park, 12,000 square kilometers with 12,000 elephants and hundreds of lions. I had the privilege of seeing the lions on their prey. I had the privilege one day at evening walking along a path and hearing what sounded like a giant tomcat purring (laughs) when it was a lion and saw stepping through the bush the most kingly animal that you could imagine a great male lion with a great mane accompanied by a lioness and as they walked through the bush only a few yards from me it sounded as though they had turned on a little motor inside they had a little purring motor this line is not purring this line in the book of Revelation is roaring And the Bible says that God's last message, the little book message that goes to the world in the last generation, is given not in a purr and not in a whispering hope, but with the voice of a lion when he roars. And so God's message when it goes to the world in the last days, goes with the voice of certainty. And it goes with triumph. And it goes with assurance because it is the message of God. It is not a whispering hope, my friend. Now verse 3 again, it says, When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voice. This is interesting because 
The seven thunders imply that something great is about to happen. And if you were to turn to the Gospel of John, you read there the story of, of a great thunder that came just before Calvary where heaven thundered on the verge of the greatest crisis of time and eternity. You know the story, don't you? Just before Jesus went to the cross, the Bible tells us that the heavens opened up and the heavens thundered because something tremendous was about to take place. And here, my friend, the greatest event perhaps in the history of the human race is about to take place. Jesus is going to come and he's going to come back to this planet. And before he comes, the Bible says, there is the voice of thunder to tell the people something great is about to happen. And verse 4 says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. And so here you have the message of the seven thunders, but nobody knows it. It appears at that time, and this may not always be so, but at that time, it was not in the plan of God to reveal the detailed message and the contents of the seven thunders. The Bible says in some other place that clouds and darkness are about his throne. Not everything about God and his dealings with the human race are plain and easy to be understood. The great truth, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, is a part of the little book message. But how God deals with his people is often a mystery. And when the seven thunders speak, John is about to write down the message because those seven thunders probably concern the future of the people of God and God says, don't write it down. We are called to trust him when his ways are obscure. Amen. Remember this. God often seals up the seven thunders because we can't take it in. Alan White, whom we believe had the gift of prophecy, wrote in the book Desire of Ages a magnificent statement. She said, God never leads his children other than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose that they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. God never leads his children other than they would choose to be led. When you and I get home to glory land, my friend, and we look back over the trials of this life and we see awful things that happen to us, we will say, God, knowing everything as I do now, I would not have chosen that it should be any different way. And so the Bible tells us that there are seven thunders, but they are sealed up in the providence of God. But we can be sure of one thing, even though we do not know the future, we do not know what the future holds. Thank God we know who holds the future. Amen. And so we can trust the future and the message of the seven thunders in the hands of of Almighty God. Verse 5 and 6. Please read it with me. Verse 5 and 6. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land 
lifted up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. The old King James Version says that there should be time no longer. This is a more accurate translation. The great message from, from Revelation chapter 10 is this, that there comes a time in the history of the world when God says enough is enough. And there is going to be no longer delay, but God is going to consummate the plan of redemption. Now, I want you to keep your finger there, and I want you to come to a parallel passage over here in Daniel chapter 12, and verse 6 and 7, because this book is largely based on the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, and verse 6 and 7. And here you come to the last book, or the last chapter of the book of Daniel, that concerns the last days, the time of the end. And I'd like you please, if you don't mind, to turn to this passage, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? That is the question that is echoed through Scripture. In Daniel chapter 8, how long? You read other passages, how long? In the book of Revelation, you read, how long? This is the cry of, of David in the book of Psalms, how long, Lord? Don't you sometimes wonder yourself, how long? Why, why, doesn't God, why isn't God more active? Is God sleeping? God, does God not care? Doesn't he know the hurt of his people? Why is God so slow in doing anything? We seem to be in an awful hurry, but God seems to have all the time in the universe. And the cry of the suffering church of God down through the ages is, how long to the end of these wonders? And verse, verse 7, Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. And this is very, very similar to the passage we have been reading. Uh, Daniel says, because Daniel has seen the, the work of the great Antichrist and he has felt the hot breath of the dragon himself, and after seeing all of these visions, seeing the prophecy of the 2300 days and all of it, he says, how long, Lord, until it's finished? And in Daniel, the mighty angel swears by him who lives forever and ever that after the time, times, and half a time, and after the people of God have been crushed, maybe that's a part of the message of the seven thunders. The Bible says, after the holy people have been crushed, then God is going to finish it all. And so this is the cry of the people of God down through the ages. And we who believe in historicism believe that the time, times, and half a time bring us right down to our own day, to the last era. And so, Revelation chapter 10 
is not dealing with something that occurred thousands of years ago. Revelation chapter 10 is dealing with something that occur, occurs in the last era, era of, of earth's history. And so in Revelation chapter 10, you have Christ himself who takes charge of the circumstances and he comes down and he says, the time has come in the infinite plan of the sovereign God of the universe when there's going to be no longer delay and I'm going to finish it. Now let this comfort your hearts today to know this. However long the night may be, there is coming a sunrise. Amen. Just remember. Even when it appears that God isn't on his throne and the pain is too much to take and you, you are tempted to despair and you think, is it worthwhile? Remember this. However long and however black the night, the sun's going to come up. Amen. Jesus is going to come. You know, I guess, I don't guess, I, I think it's probably more than guessing, when Eve had a little baby, she said, and you can read this in the, in the margin particularly, she says, I have gotten a baby from the Lord, but the margin says, I've gotten a baby, the Lord. She thought that little baby was the Messiah. That was a long time ago, folks. God said, I'm going to send deliverance to you. And she had a baby, and she said, he is the deliverer. But a lot of time is gone, hasn't it? And then when you come down to the days of Daniel, thousands of years later, he's saying, how long, Lord, until you do something about this? And when you get through to chapter 12 of his great book, which has been called The Greatest of the Prophets, He's seen all the prophecies, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and now he's into Daniel 12, and he says, Lord, how long is it going to be now? And the angel swears it's going to be for a time, times, and half a time. He thought that most likely was three and a half literal years. It became 1,260 years. So there has been a long delay. But I want you folks to know this. The day is coming when even though the night has been long and dreary and painful when the sun is going to come up. Amen. Jesus is going to come again. And the Bible says here that Jesus comes down and he cries like a lion and he swears by the great God of the stars that the time is coming in the history of this planet when there is going to be no longer a delay. And I believe that we're living in that time. I believe, according to a study of the Bible prophecies, that we have come to the last era I believe that we are living not at the 
uh, end of time, but I believe we're living in the time of the end. I believe we have lots of evidence for that from Bible prophecy. And I believe we're living in the time when the last message is going to the world. And a part of that last message is there's not going to be much more night because the sun is going to come up soon. There's not going to be any more delay because Jesus is going to come. Amen. So I think this is a wonderful message. God's last message, our message to the world, is the message of prophecy. There will come a day, however long delayed, and Jesus is going to come back. Please look at verse 7 of uh, Revelation chapter 10. My dear friends, and it's, it's wonderful to see you turning up the pages of the Bible, and turning to the text, looking up the text, as I say. Verse 7, we'll come to verse 6, and swore, swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Now the Bible says there comes a day when the mystery of God is going to be finished. And the saints of God are going to be taken home to glory. The Bible says that the mystery of God is going to be finished. Now the question is, what is the mystery of God? The Bible says that in the days of the seventh angel when he is about to sound. And when he sounds, you know what he says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so just before Jesus returns in glory to set up his kingdom on the earth, the Bible says the mystery of God is going to be finished. The question is, what is the mystery of God? Did you know this, that in Scripture... There are two mysteries. Helen, there is the mystery. There is the mystery, I tell you, of iniquity. The Bible says the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Therefore, there are two mysteries. There's the, um, the mystery of iniquity. Would you like to know what the mystery of iniquity is? How evil could come out of that which was good. He was an angel in heaven and he was sinless. And we can use all the cliches and talk about freedom of choice and we can say, well, he chose it. But the question is, why did he choose it? He was a sinless being. Alan White makes a statement, to explain it is to excuse it. You can't understand it. I can't understand how a being who had it all, who stood next to the throne of God, who was the covering cherub and he didn't have original sin, he didn't have any predisposition to sin. He had no propensities to iniquity. But that sinless being became the devil. That's a mystery. But the Bible says there's another mystery. And it's a greater mystery. And I want you to notice the mystery because I, I want you, thank you. You be just looking after my glasses. Hmm. Else you can read the text. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and 26. I want you to notice the mystery. A number of texts on the mystery, please. Romans 16, 
Verse 25 and 26. You folks doing okay? You doing okay, brother? Got that there? Just work up to you in a moment, Bob. So you just don't slip off into a little state of unconsciousness. Because I'm working towards you. Must be a terrible way to sit in church not knowing what's going to happen next. Once upon a time you go to church and sleep with a clear conscience. Now to him, Romans 16, verse 25, 26. You got that, folks? Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of what? Of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. God had a secret. But now has been made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. What's this mystery? The Bible says that God had a mystery. And the Bible says it was kept secret. It wasn't kept completely secret. The mystery is the story of the gospel. How God would send his own son down to this earth and his son would die for us on the cross. This was foreshadowed, Bill, in types and symbols and ceremonies. But it was still only vaguely comprehended. And the Bible tells us it was not fully understood until Jesus came down himself in the flesh. The mystery is the story of the gospel, the good news of Christ. Come to Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. I want you to notice a number of texts about the mystery of God. Ephesians chapter 1, Galatians, then Ephesians chapter 1. Did I say 9 and 10? Yeah, Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10. How you doing there, brother? Finding it okay? Mm-hmm. Good for you. Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, Heaven, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. The Bible says that God had a plan. And it was a mystery. What's the mystery here? That God is going to bring the whole unity, the whole universe back into a blessed unity. That there's going to be no more fighting, there's not going to be any more squabbling, there's not going to be any racism for sure, there won't be congregations uh, worshipping according to the color of their skins, you hear what I'm saying? You won't find people breaking off into little groups, but they'll be worshipping together, and they'll be loving God together, and they're all saved, and the Bible says that is the greatest mystery. You go and talk to people who are unbelievers and you say, I've got a bunch of people and they're all different sorts of colors and they all worship together and they all love Jesus and they're, they're all happy together and, and there's no fighting. And they'll say, that's a mystery. It's the mystery of the marvelous grace of God. Come now to Colossians 1, 25 to 28. Over a little further, Colossians chapter 1. Verse 25 to 28. Did you know this word mystery was mentioned so often? 
Colossians 1 verse 25 to 28. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints to whom God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. It's a mystery to the Gentiles. But my friend, it says that this mystery was to be revealed to the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The Bible says... God had a mystery. This mystery was hidden to the world. And it is, it is the mystery how Christ, the living God, can come and live in this heart of mine. And how God, by his grace, can bring good out of evil. There's the other mystery that we spoke about. The first one was evil out of good that's the mystery of iniquity but God has a mystery and his mystery is how the gospel can bring something good out of this sinner that's the mystery of God good out of evil wonderful come to Colossians 4 and verse 3 Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3 Colossians Chapter 4, verse 3. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. The mystery of Christ is the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 3 now, verse 16. This is a great definition now of the mystery of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 16, 1 Timothy, third chapter, and verse 16. Got this, folks? Okay, it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of what? So the Bible talks about the mystery of iniquity. But here is the mystery of what? The mystery of godliness. And read on and notice in the Bible what the mystery of godliness is. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That's the mystery of God. And the Bible says that the day comes, and this is the day in which we're living, when God says there's going to be no more delay, but the mystery of God is going to be finished. God is going to finish the work of the gospel, and he's going to come, and he's going to save his people, and deliver them into his kingdom. No longer delay is the message of Revelation 10. Amen. With you... I spent a little time on Wednesday watching the funeral of the ex-president of the United States, Richard Milhouse Nixon, who of course suffered vilification over Watergate. 
I was impressed by the words of Dr. Billy Graham. Dr. Billy Graham didn't say, here lies a sinless man, and because he made no mistakes and had no sins, he's now going to go to heaven. Dr. Billy Graham did something that touched my heart. Dr. Billy Graham spoke about the hymn, Amazing Grace. He said, you know who the man was who wrote Amazing Grace? You know who he was? He was a man who kept slaves. And he was not a very nice man. But he came to know Christ, and Christ changed him completely. You see, there is hope for slave owners. Hear this? Say amen to that. There's hope for slave owners. There's hope for profligates, there's hope for liars, there's hope for murderers, there's hope for cheats, and there's hope for every type of sinner. There's hope for people even who are involved in Watergate. And then Dr. Billy Graham quoted the hymn, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the message of the gospel. I want you to know today, the Bible says that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. People say, but that person hasn't got the right to go to heaven. But neither have you. Neither have I. The General Conference President, my friend Elder Falkenberg, hasn't got the right to go to heaven. He's not good enough. He's too great a sinner. We're all great sinners, but Jesus died for sinners. That's the message of the book. How sweet the sound, how sweet the sound, how wonderful the sound, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, the saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. And of course he got rid of his slaves when he saw too, didn't he? Look at Revelation 10 and verse 7. Revelation 10 verse 7. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. That's the gospel. As he declared to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, this is verse 8, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Now, I want you to just pause for a moment. Remember when we studied Revelation chapter 5 about the great big book that was sealed with the seven seals? And the voice was heard saying, Who is worthy to open the book? And no man is found worthy. And John weeps much because no one is found worthy to open the book or to loose the seven seals thereof. But then there is someone who is found worthy. Only one person in the universe is found worthy to take that book, and that is the Lamb of God. And it says the Lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the book and to, and to take it. But this is a different book. This is a different book. Because if you notice the next verse, you notice who can take it. Notice verse, verse 9. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said, take and eat it. My friend, 
This little book is not for the line of the tribe of Judah. This is not for the sinless one. This little book is for the sinner. And it's a little book. It's a book small enough for a little child. It's like your little book. Just a little book. It's a little book and it's not designated just for the conqueror. It is a book, my friend, for the sinner. And so John, as the representative of all of us, goes and he takes the book. What is the book? God's last message to the human race. Certainly it contains some of the wonderful revelations of the prophecies, but primarily it is the message of the grace of God. It is the everlasting gospel. Amen. Mm -hmm. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said, Take and eat it. Take and eat it. Now listen. I want you to think about this. If you want to be a Christian, take and eat it. Now if you're the sort of person who comes to church and this is entertainment, well, that's fine. You're welcome. I don't mind what reason you come to church. But I want to tell you, if you just come to church for entertainment, if you were to die, you wouldn't be saved. But I want you to come so you will be saved. Amen. We come to church so we can take it and eat it. And eating it means doing it every day. You say to me, Pastor Carter, you don't know what my schedule is. Yes, I do. Probably less than mine. I've got to eat it. Why do I have to eat it? Why do I have to tie it? Why do I have to? And I want to say it to every one of you here today. Why do I have to spend time every day eating it? I will tell you why. Because I am a sinner. Because I am weak. Because I am subject to temptation. I am subject to depression. I am subject to falling. I am subject to sinning, and I do. The Bible says there is no man on the face of earth who, uh, on the face of the earth, who doesn't sin. And if you say I've never sinned and I don't sin, that's just another one you've done. None are so blind as those who believe that they are sinless, or harder to live with. I must take the little book. Now you may be so strong, you may be stronger in your eyes than anybody else. Therefore you don't need to read the little book. You don't need to take the little book every day. You may be so strong, I say God bless you, but God open your eyes for your delusion. Amen. You and I need to take the little book and we need to eat it. Now read on. Take, take and eat it and it'll make your stomach bitter, but it'll be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. And when I'd eaten it, my stomach became bitter. I wonder what is it talking about? There's no question in my mind this has an application to the great disappointment of 1844, but I believe it includes much more than that. This is a description of the gospel and the results of eating.
the gospel. Let me read to you from one famous commentator. Sweeter than honey, hear that? Sweeter than honey is the gospel because it tells of sins forgiven, guilt removed, everlasting righteousness imputed, a sure title to the skies, and the earnest of the sanctifying spirit, the guarantor and pledge of the coming inheritance. Sweet. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in our believer's ear. The gospel is sweet. On Thursday, I had someone call me from Ventura. I, I, this lady had watched the television program and called Andrews University to get our phone number called me at home, and I was, I was as busy as anything. And I must tell you, I didn't want her, that phone call until I heard it. She said, Pastor Carter, I'm an old-time church member, and I feel such a rotten sinner. Mm -hmm. She said, I feel depressed. She said, I don't love people like I ought to love them. I said, nor do I. And she said, you don't? but you're on television. <laughs> she said, you don't love them? No, no. She said, I don't feel that I'm good enough. I said, you know why you feel you're not good enough? She said, why? I said, because you're not. I said, you're not good enough. But I said, Jesus loves you in spite of your lack of love. Jesus loves you in spite of your weaknesses. Jesus loved, and I told this old Adventist Christian, an old lady, the, and she'll probably hear this, God bless her. I told her the wonderful story that Christ died for us, and he loves us, and if we, and if we look to him, she said, what should I do then? She said, uh, what should I do with my thoughts? I said, direct them to Jesus. Whatever gets your attention gets you. Let Jesus get your attention. Concentrate on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't concentrate on what's in because what is in us isn't very good. It's all dark inside. Don't look in because it's all dark. Look out to the light. And she said, is that all I've got to do? I said, yes, look out to the light. Look to Jesus. You know what she said to me? She said, how sweet. She said, how sweet are those words? If you come to Jesus, it's sweet. Know today that he loves you, he cares for you, he died for you, he intercedes for you, even though you and I have made a million mistakes and we fall often, he accepts us. This is the mercy of God. My friend, this is very hard for the cold heart of the Pharisee to believe because the cold hearted Pharisee judges people on a perception of self-righteousness. The Pharisee judges people according to the Pharisee standard, but God doesn't judge us according to my attainment. He judges me according to his mercy. How sweet it is. If there's someone here today, you feel you're not good enough, you're often depressed, you know that you don't love as much as you ought to, you know that you stumble, I want you to know, here is the little book. Take it and eat it. It's yours. 
It's not just to be given to the strong, it's to be given to the weak man because it's for everybody, every person. You see? But he takes the book, he eats it, and his stomach becomes bitter. Why? Now I'll tell you why. This doesn't really fit in with the philosophy of the prosperity gospel. The problem is, it's the truth. The acceptance of the gospel, while it brings great joy, will always bring great tribulation. Now there are not a lot of amens to that, because in this part of the world, in the United States of America, religion on the whole is a money-making racket. It's not really Christianity at all. The latest Gallup poll says that most folks go to church, but people who go to church are just as immoral, just as criminal as the people who don't go to church. That's what they say. Basically, no change in the life. So what's the use of it? People outside of this country say it's no use at all. But their solution is no better either. So what are we trying to say? We're saying this that there is a true gospel and there is a false gospel. The acceptance of the true gospel does not guarantee your financial success. We do not say to you today when we take up the offering, give a great offering and God will give you a Cadillac, because that's a lie. We know that isn't true. We believe that God is going to bless you. He will bless you. That is true. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse and I'll pour out so much blessing there won't be room enough to receive it. That is true. But the Bible says, Jesus said, he who follows me will receive houses and lands and brothers and sisters with tribulation. That's what he says. So, what happens when the true gospel is preached? Listen to this revelation. The preaching of the true gospel always leads to controversy and contention and that always leads to persecution. Listen, because this is a hard saying. I wish it said, take the little book and eat it, and it'll be sweet in your mouth and doubly sweet in your stomach. It doesn't say that. The Bible says, when the true gospel of Jesus is preached, there'll always be trouble. If you belong to a church or a congregation and there's never any trouble and it's all sweetness and light, it is because you're not preaching the true gospel. The true gospel always results in bitterness, sometime or the other. It was true with our Lord, it was true with all of the saints. It was true in our church in 1888 when Jones and Wagner came with the gospel of righteousness by faith. They were persecuted and hated by other ministers. John Wesley, the great Anglican minister, started out preaching and when he started to preach he was vilified, thrown in the river, stoned, kicked and beaten. My wife Beverly, when she was a girl of 16, accepted the gospel on a station or a ranch in the outback of Australia, was driven out of her home by her parents, who have somewhat become reconciled. The true gospel always brings sweetness and bitterness. Sweet and sour. The poet said, Must I be carried to the skies and flowery beds of ease, 
while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. I've had people come to me, even people who ought to know better ministers, and they say, but is there trouble sometimes when you preach? Yes. Oh, that's dreadful. No, it's what the Bible teaches. I expect in Nisni Novgorod this year that there'll be real trouble. So we go somewhat, not fearfully, but we go with expectation of trouble. When the gospel is preached, there's sweetness, but also bitterness. Ellen White said, and this is a great statement, fellowship with Christ is the greatest honor that heaven can bestow. Fellowship with Christ. Notice verse 11, because this is the message to his last day church. Verse 11. Revelation 10, verse 11. And he said, you must prophesy again. Other translations say, you must prophesy before. You must prophesy again before many peoples, nations, and tongues, and kings. What is the message of God to the church? What is, I ask you, the mission of the church? Let me ask you, what is the mission of the church? Prophesy again. Preach again. It was preached in the days of the apostles. And that started the great Christian movement. But here you come to the last era in the history of the world and God says, no rest for the church, no sleep. You must prophesy again. And it is a, it is a worldwide commission before many peoples, nations and tongues and people. So... What is God's plan for the church? To take the little book. It's for every person. To be comforted by the truth. We've come to the era when there's no more delay. And thirdly, to share the little book with every nation, kindred, tongue and people. Let me make this appeal to you today. Let me make it with my heart. One of the problems we do face in this wonderful land is that there is so much religion that many of us become immunized to the real thing. Did you know that? In many ways it is far better to be brought up in an atheistic society like Russia or even Australia which is partially atheistic than here where almost everybody believes in God. Because what is offered here as Christianity on the whole is fraudulent. And we hear enough about it on television and in church. We hear enough of the terms Jesus, God, grace, mercy, forgiveness and heaven. We hear enough about it so that we become inoculated. And when the real thing comes along we can't distinguish from the counterfeit. We can't tell the difference. Far better to be brought up in communism than to be brought up in a system where there is spurious religion everywhere. So what is true Christianity? Take the little book. Now maybe you can't take the big book, 
because there's too much there. You don't have enough time. You can't work it out. But you can take the little book. And the little book has a little message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 